My name is Isaac Fitzgerald. And I'm Summer Ann Burton. And this is The Tell Show. On our podcast, we like to talk about feelings and stories and and overshare the hell out of it. We like to, we like <laughs> to have our guests on so that they can just like rip their hearts out of their chest, put it on their sleeve, and wear then it we proudly. Eat, and then we eat it. This explains so much about yeah, what's gone is, wrong. This is really good. <laughs> this is really good stuff. Our guest today is Michael Ian Black. He's a hilarious comedian, and he has a new book out. And we're going to talk about home. And the many different things that that can mean. It means so many things. It's like maybe the most loaded word. Yeah. What's your idea of home, Isaac? Growing up, I moved around a lot. Yeah. I lived in inner city Boston, Mm -hmm. um, but we bounced around from all sorts of different living arrangements and and apartments. Uh, One of the places I I grew up around was called Haley House, Mm -hmm. which was a soup kitchen in Boston. It was a homeless shelter. And when I was very young there, it was very bustling. It was very busy. Uh, and there are always obviously people around. Right. Um, and as a young kid, like I just love to be around people and kind of love to entertain in any way that I possibly could. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that place was almost this stage for me. And like mm-hmm. I didn't realize that it was really weird for a six year old to be in a soup <laughs> kitchen. Um, right. I just really loved it. And uh, and so for me, actually, the places I feel the most at home. Full of other human beings. Yeah. Surrounded yeah. by people is where I feel mm-hmm. home. Have you ever lived alone? Brief moments in my life. Yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. Absolutely not. Huh. I lived alone for most of my adult life. And so, yeah, I mean, I, when I first moved out of my parents' house, my first house was with a roommate and is this, this is still Austin, Texas. Austin. Yeah. And I was a terrible roommate looking back. Like I didn't, I wasn't self-aware about it at the time, but I'm messy. I grew up messy. I had a messy room as a kid. My parents were very loose and not strict with me about it and so I was bad roommate and then I lived alone and I still didn't really like figure out how to be a normal adult I was still really messy and I had my mom in the town where I lived and my mom (laughs) happens to be an extremely selfless and warm human being and she Wait, how old are we talking uh 25 oh. <laughs> <laughs> um but she she also uh would come over to my apartments where i lived alone and just like wash my dishes for me or or what? like clean my apartment she did tell me once like years later that she used to keep all the change that she collected on my floor and that she would like use it to do laundry and she never had to get changed. <laughs> that was that was what she got out of it. All the quarters that were like underneath my couch. Our guest on this episode of The Tell Show is comedian and writer Michael Ian Black. He has a new book out now called Navel Gazing, True Tales of Bodies, Mostly Mine, But Also My Mom's, which I know sounds weird. He's also the host of the podcast, How to Be Amazing. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we're really excited to have you. We warmed things up with a game of Never Have I Ever. Summer Ann, do you want to explain the rules? So Never Have I Ever is a game where each of us will say something that we have never done. And the other people playing will typically at a bar drink if they have done this. Uh, Since this is a podcast and you don't want to hear our drinking noises, we will ring a bell like so. If you have. If you have done 
How will we, how will the listeners identify where the bell is coming from? We will then talk about it. Okay. That's what's going to happen. Also, usually there's a lot of laughter. So you are a giggler, aren't you? Isaac, I do, man, Isaac let me loves tell you. to laugh. He I, loves to LOL. I'm right. a joyful man. <laughs> All right, Isaac, do you want to kick us off? I do. So never have I ever given nor received the Heimlich maneuver. What was the Just occasion, me. Summer? Just me. When I was, I've never given the Heimlich maneuver, thank God, because I don't want to be responsible for anyone's life. But I have received it, and it was when I was 14, and my friends and I decided that it would be fun to figure out how many pixie sticks you could like put in your mouth at one time. The like actual it, stick or the contents the of co- the stick? The contents of the stick. And so we decided to start, we were like, well, we'll build up to you know, maybe we'll set a new world record or something and we'll build up to it. What was the current world record? (laughs) Great question. And I volunteered to start. And for some reason, we decided to start with 10. Like Mm. we were like, well, obviously we can do 10. So I laid down on a bed and opened my mouth and my girlfriends, I was 14. Did I say that? They opened 10 pixie sticks and just poured them into my open mouth. And then one of my friends made me laugh. And so when I laughed, I inhaled quickly and just a like sort of a layer of pixie stick just formed solidly in my throat. A and pixie block, we call yes. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, did, did any of your friends realize that pixie sticks are water soluble? <laughs> I don't think we really thought this through. We were homeschooled, so this was like our version of like buying cocaine and like doing too much of it. I need to say, just as somebody who attended public school, we did not buy cocaine. <laughs> That's my perception of, of 14 year olds in public school. I understand. I was, I was in eighth grade at the time. There was very little cocaine consumed. I find that hard to believe. Well. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe for a, a good couple minutes, and my friends were losing their minds. And so one of them gave me the Heimlich maneuver, and I eventually choked up like enough pixie dust that I was able to breathe again. Do you want to go up next? I'll, I'll go next. Um, never have I ever had a driver's license. Oh. I mean, what's the story, though? I drive. Yeah, I mean, did, when did you get your driver's license? I feel license? like this is about you. No, it's not about me. I feel like this is about me. you, Summer. It's not about me. I got my driver's license when I turned 17, which is in New Jersey is the legal age for when you get your driver's license. Did you pass the test the first time? Yes. Have yeah. you ever been in a car wreck? Oh, yeah. So the test failed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair way to, to look at it, yeah. I've been in several car wrecks. Mm. Uh, pr- pr- probably all my fault. Mm. Probably every single one. Oh, no, one, one. well, yeah, that one is my fault, too. You hear that, New Jersey? Yeah, well, I don't drive in New Jersey no more. <laughs> Where's your license now? In my wallet. What about you? Um, never have I ever performed slam poetry. Oh, shit. Fuck. <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> oh, that's the grossest. <laughs> Do you want to go first? I mean, I don't know. I don't have a good... I did slam poetry. I was a teenager. I, it was at a lesbian coffee shop called Gabby and Moe's. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and Everything about this is making me cringe. I will say that there, here's a fun fact. So, like, I was. Well, let me this, just to clarify, are you a lesbian? I'm not a lesbian. Okay. Um, Were you experimenting? I thought it was cool. Right. That it was a lesbian. No, it's so shop. cool. I was not actively experimenting. At what the makes time. the coffee shop a lesbian coffee shop? Do they wa- only serve lesbian tea and coffee? <laughs> it was like a place where a lesbians hangout. hung out. It was Got called it. Gabby and Moe's, and there was like a logo that was like two stick figure girls. Scissoring. Know, and scissoring. Mm hmm. 
So I, um, yeah, I was, I thought the poetry slam was cool and I went and did poetry that was very bad. Uh, do you remember any of your poems? Uh, there. <laughs> so the answer is yes. And, <laughs> let, <laughs> and let's hear. No, I can't do it. Of course you can. I could. Okay. There was, oh God. <laughs> there was one that was like, <laughs> boom goes the room. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> It was like, <laughs> boom, goes the room when you walk in the door. Sparkle, crackle, pop, and I drop to the floor. <laughs> Please don't stop. That's it. I can't do anymore. That's it. That's all you get. In my mind, every slam poem begins with a one-syllable word. Boom. Boom. Mm -hmm. Goes the room. <laughs> when he walks through the door, snap, crackle, pop. <laughs> yeah. My heart goes zoom. Mm-hmm. My heart then drops as he caresses my hand. He doesn't understand my feelings so pure. How can I endure his gaze? He raises me up. Soon we will sup together. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> Thank you. You just did it, man. Mm. Yes. It was meant in, in a form of gentle mockery. <laughs> gentle and loving mockery. So we're here to tell some stories. And one that we want to just like start out with is buying your first house. Well. And what year was this? I think 2000. Maybe early 2001. I was living in Los uh, Angeles, mm. California. A foray into Southern California, an expedition, an experiment with my wife. We'd been living in New York City for 10 years. We'd just gotten married in 1998. We decided to uh, give L.A. a try because I am an actor, and it just felt like, well, you got to give it a try. And I realized uh, I, I, I disliked living in Los Angeles. I didn't want to continue living in Los Angeles and therefore needed to leave Los Angeles. What didn't you like about L.A.? I didn't like the weather. I found the sunshine oppressive. <laughs> I didn't like the culture. I found the culture asphyxiating. Mm -hmm. And I foresaw a career for myself had I stayed in Los Angeles that maybe I was not comfortable living. And that career would have been a series of guest starring roles on sitcoms, perhaps leading to, to my own supporting role on some sitcom at some point down the line. And having barbecues on the weekends with other sitcom actors and talking <laughs> about sitcoms and movie box office grosses and that sort of thing. And I, I said, uh, no, thank you. And at the time, I had a job. I was the Pets.com sock puppet, but that was my only job. So if you recall, in the first dot-com boom, there was a company called Pets.com. Their mascot was a sock puppet that was a dog. I was that dog <laughs> and forearm thereof. Good forearm. Thank you. Um, I was hired on the strength of my forearm. <laughs> and so one day in 2000, I said to my wife, fly to the East Coast and buy us a house. Was there a moment? Was there like the, there was the no single thing 
that did it. It was just the 18th. I mean, I think I'd been to like pilot season or something, which is when all the networks are casting their new shows for the coming year. And it's just like a cattle call and it's dispiriting. And I just had no interest in walking into these rooms and auditioning for homeboys from outer space or whatever it is they were casting. And I just saw my future stretched out before me in a way that made me profoundly sad for myself. Not that there's anything wrong with people doing that. I, it just isn't what I wanted for myself. Right. So the reason this was a significant moment for me in my life was not only was I purchasing my first home, but I was essentially making a decision to go against all the best advice I was receiving from everybody who was professionally uh, obligated to give me advice. So agents and managers were saying, don't do this because it's dumb. And it was hard to argue at that point because mm -hmm. it is dumb because the, the, the ground zero for show business is obviously Hollywood, California. And to turn your back on that is at best a risky move. But I guess what I was deciding in that moment was I would rather have the life that I want to live than the career mm -hmm. I could maybe have. And that almost by definition meant relocating to the East Coast. So I, I sent her away, and so we have, oh, I don't know, we can afford maybe $275,000 for a house. And I thought, surely we could afford some sort of manse <laughs> in the better parts of the East Coast, perhaps. And uh, I said, you, you go out there by yourself, because we can't afford two people going out to buy the single most important investment you're ever going to make can't afford that additional $300. <laughs> so you go out and take our money and buy a house. So she went out and very quickly realized that there was no house to be had for, as they say, that price point uh, in, in towns that maybe we wanted to live in. Where you could get to the city. Where you could get to the city. That was part of it. I need to get to the city fairly easily as I resumed uh, my tremendously successful New York City acting career, <laughs> of which there was none. And uh, she found a house on the market for, I don't know, two hundred and forty dollars or $50,000. She said, I think it's a nice house. And I said, well, let's buy it. So I was essentially buying a house unseen, sight unseen. And she said, well, what if you see it and you hate it? And I said, I will tell you I love it no matter how I actually feel. I, I couldn't put that on her and be like, you, you made a sh you bought a shitty house. I couldn't do that. And even even at this moment, even though you, it sounds like you maybe a little less, you could cut out that $300 and be like, all right, I'll fly and check it out. It didn't out. even occur to me that that was a possibility. <laughs> that, that thought never even registered with me that that was a possibility. And so we sh I show up to this house, and it is a 1919 Dutch colonial in Peekskill, New York, on a cul-de-sac street with a park at the end of it. And it is a totally charming Dutch colonial. And I think to myself, I hate this house. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> I 
<laughs> there's a park at the end of the cul-de-sac. Yeah, there's a park at the end of the cul-de-sac. But uh, uh, something about the house was just like stuffy and old, and it needed a bunch of work. And 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 so my, I walked in, and my wife said, "What do you think of the house?" And I said, "I love it. I love this house." And all the while thinking to myself, I can't possibly live here. And so, <laughs> how does that feel just holding that like right there in that moment? Oh, brutal, brutal, because I know I'm going to be living in this house <laughs> possibly forever. And the gentleman who lived there was not quite ready to let the house go. Um, I know this because one morning we woke up and looked out the window and he was mowing our lawn. <laughs> and he had died in 1988. <laughs> and my wife said, what is he doing? And I said, I think he's mowing our lawn. Uh. And then he went into the garage, which was also full of his things. And he closed the door behind him. And he stayed in there for maybe 45 minutes. 45 years. Yeah. <laughs> and finally... We, where, did, where had he moved to? Was like he, uh, a next, couple blocks away. He was like uh, your next door neighbor now. Yeah, well, we, he was far enough away that we weren't going to see him. Until uh, he came over to mow Until he came over to mow <laughs> his slash our lawn. So what do you do? He's in the garage. He's in the garage. My wife and I concoct a plan. And the plan is, when he comes out of the garage, I will exit the house holding two cold beers and offer him a beer. And then we will have a, a brief conversation about him not coming over to mow our lawn. And could you please take all your accumulated stuff from the garage and from the basement? And then the garage door opened and I watched him uh, uh, ride his riding mower away <laughs> because I was too scared <laughs> to talk to him. You're just sitting there holding two beers. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, oh, and, and, and so let me go back. So four months after we moved, I ended up getting one of those supporting parts on a network television show that shot in New York. And I felt like, all right, it's a good show. It was called Ed. It was on an NBC. And I felt like, all right, well, clearly, like, this was not a bad decision for me. And uh, all the haters can go fuck themselves. <laughs> Uh, so I felt validated. And since then, I have become a millionaire. Not really. Um, <laughs> so, so not from that show. Yeah. Certainly not. Got it. Certainly got not it. from that show. Got it, got it, got it. Or from anything else. <laughs> um, I was really interested when you were talking about just that moment of thinking that, like, you didn't want your life to be about your career or about waiting for your career to happen. You just wanted, like, the life that you wanted to start. Mm -hmm. I feel like since I turned 30, maybe I've had that experience of thinking that like basically my whole life, it's almost been like a joke to say, oh, when I grow up, I'll have X. Like this is the life I'll have someday when I'm older. And at some point I was like, oh, I'm getting old. I already can't do the things that I like used to be able to do. And I don't have that life. Yeah. I, I don't think that the feeling ever quite goes away that you're kind of waiting for maturity. Well, you're 30? I'm 33. I'm 26. And <laughs> I think that feeling stays with you. So you just you just start doing things. Or not. Let me ask, <laughs> did it ever feel like home? 
Yeah. That oh, house yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly once you have a baby throwing up on you, you're like, oh, this is my house. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm going to do everything in my power to escape it as soon as humanly possible. I can't wait to go to work to get away from this screaming newborn that that's, lives in my house. That's, so, the true, that's the true definition of home. Yeah. The place, you, the place you can't wait to flee from. Perfect. That's what makes a home. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Michael Ian Black. My pleasure. Before you go, though, we have three questions that we ask every guest. Mm-hmm. Isaac, do you want to kick us off? Absolutely. This is a lightning round. What was your last kiss like? Well, there are certainly uh, daily kisses with my kids. And those are perfunctory. Uh, <laughs> daily kisses with my wife, also perfunctory. <laughs> but I feel like, I feel like I did a professional kiss with somebody fairly recently, but I can't remember with whom or the context. But I remember this person's lips as being somewhat thin and somewhat dry. I would love to get paid to kiss people. <laughs> oh my god! Well, there are times like I once through every fault of my own, wrote a sketch where I uh, end up marrying a fan from the audience. And it, w- and it was Ron Funches, who is mm-hmm. a very funny, uh, very large at the time, black dude. He's since lost like 100 pounds. Um, but he was like totally game. And, and they say, you know, you may kiss. And so we kissed. And he totally stuck his tongue in my mouth. Woo! And I was like, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I just thought that would be right in the moment. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, I can't really fault you for that. But um, Okay. When was the last time that you cried? God, I don't even know. I don't know. You don't cry very often? I mean, I'm dead inside. Mm. Uh, I have no idea. Strong man? No, not strong. Just emotionally stunted. Well, interesting you should say that. Our last <laughs> question. And you can. this is up to any type of interpretation you would like. Uh What's wrong with you? Uh, at the moment, I, I, well, this is the, no, this is lifelong. I often uh, let my ambition and greed get ahead of my common sense and uh, and and personal relationships. I mean, like I'm really thinking this podcast is going to springboard me <laughs> to something. <laughs> yeah, and so you know, I left my wife and kids alone powers out (laughs) well thank you so much for uh coming on our show michael ian black is a comedian and he is the author of the new book navel gazing true tales of bodies mostly mine but also my mom's which i know sounds weird michael thank you so much for joining us. thanks guys next time on the tell show a story about letting go In the meantime, we sent producer Julia Furlan out on the streets to ask people about a time that they let go. Excuse me, guys. Can I ask you a really quick question? I'm I'm looking for, I'm asking people, what is something that you've had to let go of in your life? Pizza, hamburgers, donuts. Like, I'm trying to, like, be as healthy as I can. If you had to write a love letter to one food, what would that food be? Dear pizza, you complete me. Please come back. Dejar mi país, Puerto Rico. Did you let it go? One day I tried. I don't know what day, but maybe. I mean, I guess when I uh, went to basic training, because I had to let go of my family, friends for like four months. 
I really wasn't trying to get to know anybody, so I really had to change my ways, really, to a nice kid. And then, you know, I think I think I had to really let go of the anger because I'm a cool person now, you know. <laughs> I'm pretty giggly and stuff now, so I think the army really didn't change that. I ain't even gonna hold you. And then, I mean, the drill sergeants really didn't change you because they really are like your father, and they break you down like you're a little-ass kid. Like, <laughs> So it's like, I have two fathers. Well, I'm not going to say two. I'll say like eight. Eight with big-ass hats on that tell you what to do, tell you when to eat, tell you when to shit, tell you when to shower. But, I mean, it's all for the better, though, because it's all we have to do when we go down range next year. So you, know? so you let go? Yeah, definitely. Had to let go. Two to three years ago, I had to let go, unfortunately. Uh, what did you have to let go of? Uh, my boyfriend's freedom. He had to go to jail, so I had to let go. So we had a discussion over the phone, and he said, yeah, I'm going to be in here for two years, so just move on with your life. But he wasn't specific about it, so I took it as uh, move on with my life, basically bettering my life. You know, uh, I got a better job. Um, I moved to California. I'm back now to spend time with my family, and um, everything is good. Everything is really good. Tell Show is produced by Meg Kramer, with editorial oversight from Jenna Weiss-Berman. And production help from Julia Furlan and Eleanor Kagan. Thanks so much to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios for recording the show. And thank you to Love Inks, who composed our music. You can email us at thetellshow at buzzfeed.com. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. We'll be back with another episode next week.